Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Scott Swaley. And we are your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 131. Scott is an electrical engineer from California Polytechnic State University. He started his career rewiring 18th century toll ships. Afterwards, Scott designed electrical systems for hospitals and data centers before becoming a specialist in renewable energy economics. Scott then began a career in teaching, and after working with students and adults in makerspaces, he discovered a new passion for tool safety and founded Make Safe Tools. So, Scott, what other things do you do? Well, I tend to have pretty fruitful but kind of disconnected hobbies. They, they, they vary quite a bit from year to year. Uh, I think nowadays I'm most often kind of tinkering around with programming, um, for example, I just wrote uh, recently a um, a gear geometry calculator. So if you go to pulleygenerator.us, it's just like a for fun thing for a project. What's that? What's that written in? Um, that one was in JavaScript. So so you're a like multidiscipline programmer then? Yeah, I'm I'm uh, just good enough to get things done in a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> The jack of jack of all trades, right? Yeah, and I'm I'm persistent more than smart, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do that. I'm I also do. A, I'm a little bit of an amateur machinist. I somehow ended up with a 1935 South Bend lathe in my garage, um, which is awesome to play with. And I actually have the original shipping certificate, <laughs> which is kind of fun. Um, and then I'm I'm kind of into a lot of random thing. I mean, some days I'll write a poem next day. I'll program next day. I'll who knows what I was doing stained glass the other day, just for fun. Nice. So what, what made you get into, let's say, uh, amateur machining? Yeah. So I, I used to be, um, a kind of engineering slash STEM teacher. Uh, and I, uh, I don't know if you guys follow click spring on YouTube. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, my wife started, uh, like, recognizing his voice instead of mine because it was on so much in our house and so <laughs> i basically learned how to machine from watching that channel um and brought it into my classroom and machined with kids for a long time um and i'm, I'm no master at it by any means but I, I like making simple things i uh, can do a little bit of cnc work uh i like lathes manually just because they're so much fun to play with um and uh it's amazing how much in a house like i'm just like oh i can go remake that part um, remake like a bushing for my bandsaw instead of going out and spending like four hours online trying to find the right part. <laughs> spending four hours actually cutting material. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe 13 hours, but you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. Regardless. <laughs> and then, oh, I need to sharpen my own tools. How do I do that? Let me learn how to do that. I, I, the same thing happened to me when I, I started learning how to weld is you start looking like, oh, I can fix now because now I can glue metal to metal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And 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 then I realized, wait, my house doesn't have a 220 outlet. Oh, I just have to figure out how to plug this in to where my dryer goes. <laughs> <laughs> then you have those running through the house, big old cables. <laughs> so 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 I'm I'm curious actually uh, a little bit just back on on that the click spring thing for a second. You you like watching that. One of the hallmarks of him is that guy must be probably the most patient man to ever exist ever. Does that does that apply to you? No, no. Um, I am persistent, but watching just when he files a gear tooth, I can't imagine doing that once and he will do it perfectly for like 17 gears. And that just blows my mind. I have no idea how that works. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
And and his voice is so soothing when he does it. And his videos are so high quality. I don't even understand. Like his shop is so small. Like where does the camera go in those shots? And then like I've had that same lathe. Like how can you see what's happening? Mm-hmm. If y'all like ClickSpring, there's another guy called This Old Tony. Yep. And he does uh, machining and stuff. I really like his style of doing videos. He's got funny ones. Yeah. But he's he, he does machining, but he also will do welding. and. Have you ever seen the one where, uh, I think it was this old Tony, where he's, I think, um, milling a keyway on the inside of a pulley, and he's using his shaper, and he uh, fuzzes out part of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I can describe that in too much detail on this podcast, but it was hilarious. It's a device that puts something inside of a hole and back out of a hole, and then he censors it with a pixelation. <laughs> <laughs> that one, like, my my wife ran into the room because she thought something was wrong. I was, like, laughing so hard. <laughs> so, yeah, this old Tony. Go check him out on YouTube and, I guess, cl- uh, click spring as well. All right, so let's get back to our guest. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm. I, if you look at enough ClickSpring, I'm actually mentioned by name in one of those. Are you really? Yeah, I had a question about tail stocks, and he in one of the Q and A episodes, he he mentioned me, and I just about shot a brick, <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a brass brick, right? <laughs> Beautifully machined. <laughs> Let's go back to like one of your first jobs, uh, Scott, which was rewiring a tall ship from the 18th century. Yeah. So this is the thing, though. In the 18th century, didn't have electricity on these boats. That's right. Oh, I'm sorry, ships. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's so I don't know if you guys remember. Did you see the uh, the very first Pirates of the Caribbean, the film? Yes. Uh, yeah. So you mean uh-huh. the only good one? <laughs> the only one I've seen, I think. Um, <laughs> the, 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 there's the Interceptor. Is the the fastest boat, and it blows up at the end. You remember that boat? Uh, the, the the British boat. Yeah. So that ship in real life is the Lady Washington a recreation of a tall ship that goes up and down the uh, West coast. And I, I don't even know how got hooked up with that and, uh, volunteered and ended up spending two different summers, almost, uh, like about six months total living and working and volunteering on that and being an electrical engineer and kind of curious and willing to get myself in the trouble. I thought it was kind of odd that, you know, we're taking lots of passengers out and sometimes the start buttons wouldn't work. And sometimes you got to wiggle things. And it was, a um, a lot of volunteers had contributed in their own way to its electrical systems. We'll say that it's, it would just randomly catch on fire. And okay, I think bubbling is the word you guys have been using. I was, yes. I was just about to say it's like, it's like bubbles at sea. <laughs> um, so, like, I, I started like looking at it, and it got to the point where like we'd have guests coming in in an hour, and I'd have the whole like control panel off. <laughs> um, but it was like, I mean, this thing's got this humongous Volvo engine. I don't. I don't know what it was, probably 150 horsepower or something crazy. Um, but this huge, huge diesel and you'd crawl around and there'd be like this mess of wires, probably 80% of which go nowhere. And it just, and just wrapped in duct tape. Oh, and, and so (laughs) coated in oil, you couldn't even see what was what. I think my favorite was I once found a, there was like a, some kind of oil pressure sensor or something that had just a positive lead coming out of it that needed to go to 12 volts. And it was connected to 12 volts at the microwave in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) Or like you you accidentally touch your knee to the engine block and you can feel the little tickle of 
grounding it. <laughs> hey, we need we need to check the oil pressure on the engine. Let's uh, microwave some popcorn, <laughs> right? Yeah, check uh, the pressure. Uh, so we I did a whole bunch of work on there, and that actually turned into over time uh, me running a business called DC Marine Electric, where I did uh, electrical systems and control systems for uh, yachts. Oh, well, that's, that's cool. cool. Yeah, and I was like, hey, I need to test your new control system. I'm going to take your three million dollar yacht out on a ride. <laughs> <laughs> It was great though. I learned I learned a lot um, doing I, that. I bet you the wiring was a little bit better in those, right? Uh, it's questionable. It's, still. it's amazing. <laughs> so so one of the things I learned was that the the number one insurance claim on boats is electrical fires by a significant margin, um, because you have heat and salt water, and um, a lot of them will have sometimes three or four different voltage levels, <laughs> and so people end up mixing and matching and. Um, when you have water, you can do, um, if you don't galvanically isolate, you can basically put a nice brass fitting into the side of your boat. And if the guy next to you is wired wrong and you're wired wrong, you can actually, in like a matter of months, completely eat away that brass fitting and just have a hole in your boat. (laughs) So, I mean, it, it got, it was really interesting, like simple electronics, but also like lots of little details. And what people don't, I guess, don't realize too, is, um, actually, insulation on wires uh, will actually have different like temperature ratings given if it's wet or dry and it gets really fun when people start using plastic uh you know what are they called the uh, wire clamps so then if heat does like if it's across the top of an engine block and it gets too hot then those melt and so the wires fall onto the engine block <laughs> all sorts of goodies Mm-hmm. I'm actually, I think, I don't know if it's still applicable, but at one point I was a, um, a certified marine electrician. What, what's the number on that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like 20. <laughs> All right. So Scott, what, what does make safe tools? Yeah. So, um, is it okay if I kind of tell the story about how it came to be? I think it makes more sense that way. Yeah, sure. Please. Awesome. So, um, after doing a bunch of different kinds of engineering, I very kind of serendipitously ended up in teaching and I taught all sorts of engineering stuff to kids, which I talked about a little bit. Um, and I was running a shop with a team of uh, 15 engineers at my last place. And anytime you're in a shop with shared people, um, humans, let alone children, uh, it's, you know, having processes to keep everyone safe, safe is a significant uh, challenge. And I started getting really frustrated with some of the things I'd, I'd see. Um, for example, and this is equally true in adult shops. Um, you guys are pretty handy. It seems like with a bunch of tools. So like on a bandsaw, when you walk up to a bandsaw to cut, cut a material, what is one of the first things you adjust? Uh, the little guard that exactly that, <laughs> the blade guard, The blade guard. You take it out of the way. No, you, you, you 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 put it all the way at the maximum and be like, oh man, it's, it doesn't go wide enough to cut the material that I want. <laughs> Got what you need. <laughs> this whole tree I'm putting in does not fit. Well, you were right on the blade guard one because I, I know that most people, like first thing they do, even if they're doing everything right, is they're trained to like go and adjust the blade guard to be a quarter inch above your material. And most bandsaws, when you turn them off, keep spinning for like two minutes. And so you're in a loud shop, you walk back up and you have a fine tooth blade you can't tell it's spinning. You can't hear it. And the first thing you're trained to do is reach for the blade. It makes no sense. Um, and so I, I wanted to put a brake on it, right? Oh, I'll weld on a disc brake from a bicycle or something. And then that was like, no way, I'm, I'm not going to do that. That's, I have more chance of breaking it than I have of doing anything. So I started looking at uh, electronic uh, brakes 
and seeing what was out there. And I saw like huge industrial stuff that was way outside our reach and budget. Uh, and so started tinkering. Um, and over a couple months, developed a DC injection brake that worked for AC induction motors. And I just developed it for our shop um, and started using that on our bandsaws and our, uh, and our disc grinders. And um, people kept coming in and being like, where'd you buy that? Where'd you get that? That's interesting. Um, and I would do access control stuff and people would always ask about them and uh, kind of accidentally realized over time that that, that was a product. And so now I, uh, our first product is a, a plug and play power tool brake. So you basically take any stationary power tool that uses an induction motor. So that's almost any table saw, band saw, bench grinder, disc sander, anything like that. And all you do is plug it into this box and you plug the box into the wall. And then when you turn it off, the tool just stops in a matter of seconds instead of coasting forever. And one of my kind of founding principles was, I don't want this to be something an engineer has to install. I want it to be like the Apple thing, right? Like you just grab it and you plug it in and it works. Um, and so you don't need a, you don't need to hire an electrician to install it. Exactly. And you don't need to be like an engineer to figure out which one to buy. Um, and so it'll work with any induction motor you can plug into a 15 amp outlet. Um, and we're, we just finished beta and we're, uh, selling them now. So it's pretty fun. Well, I, I mean, this may be jumping down the line a bit. Um, but, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about how that has impacts with, uh, component uh, or, or device testing and like UL marks and, and things of that sort, like, because you're no longer, you're, you're in between it and what UL thinks it's being connected to. So like, what kind of impact does that have? So the, the one um, from the UL side, one thing is since we don't physically modify the tool in its simplest form, it's really just an on-off switch that sometimes rectifies the AC. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awesome. But, yeah, that's, that, that's like, that sounds like one of the few times that you get to get around UL's rules. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. UL t- talks about a lot of U- UL's base requirement for at least UL 508, which is uh, motor control is kind of, does it say what it's going to do is one of their, their biggest requirements. And so for motor braking, it's been around since like Tesla age when he invented the induction motor. Um, and so all that, there's really no influence on the system. The things that you could get a little hairy with is if you had delicate electronics in your tool also. So if you got some fancy RPM meter and things like that, like in my manual, it says, don't use it. Um, and uh, otherwise, the only thing it does is impact the duty cycle. So if you got an AC induction motor that's meant to, you know, it can successfully turn on, you know, seven times a minute without overheating. Now that's going to be five times a minute because each time you're also pumping some juice in to, to slow it down. So it dissipates some heat in the motor. But for hobbyists, that's never an issue. And even for most industrial applications, it's not even close to the the temperature rating of the, the enamel on the coils. So... I, I the, the the term DC injection. What does that mean? Because to me, to me, that's like for for well, since I don't know what that is. It sounds like you know how in like in sports, like baseball, you have like the little league teams that like like the AAA that go into the big leagues, like they feed into the big leagues. That's like a little band that's feeding members into the ACDC band. No, so DC injection, you actually take uh, really bad superhero movies and you put them in a syringe and then you inject them. <laughs> 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 um, 
so what, what you what you do is it's basically just so i had to learn a little bit about ac induction motors which are cool because they don't have brushes or anything you know go tesla um and so dc injection you basically are just putting it doesn't even have to be filtered just um it could even be just full wave rectified dc into the same motor and instead of creating a rotating magnetic field it creates an, a fixed magnetic field in the stator which induces the opposing magnetic field in the rotor and makes it want to stop. Oh, okay. So yeah. So you're turning the, the basically the outside coils of the induction mo motor into a permanent, well, electromagnet. Yeah, exactly. That freezes the inside um, rotor. Yeah, exactly. All right. Okay, cool. Cool. That makes a lot of sense now. Isn't that fun? And the cool thing about induction motors is there are no magnets in them. Oh, yeah. They're all electromagnet on both stator and rotor, right? Mm-hmm. And and even the rotor is not electrically connected to anything. Ah, nifty magic. It's all it's all induced, hence the induction motor. So, uh, so your little your little box senses when you've turned uh, the product off, and then immediately begins rectifying that. So right now we have just an alternate uh, uh, off switch. So instead of turning your tool off normally, you either hit a pedal or hit a little button that's um, just mounted right next to your off switch. And it knows it disconnects AC power, puts it in safe mode, breaks it till it stops, and then you're done. Oh, okay. So it's a, it, you, it, it's a separate physical switch. So you leave whatever your device, you leave that on uh, and then use yours as the master switch. Exactly. And we're, and we're pretty close to having a microcontroller version. I've got all the, the kind of peripherals ready, and I'm in that like, oh, which microcontroller do I buy phase right now? <laughs> it's a tough, tough phase. And how do I isolate it from mains without, you know, killing my bomb cost? Um, so how does it detect uh, when the motor stopped running? So after you, you're, you're injecting the DC into it, and how does it detect when it stopped? So there's um, two versions. So there's the our current version and our beta version. Our current version, you just have a, a torque and a time adjustment. It's a one-time adjustment. And so it says how, how hard it breaks and for how long. And then our beta actually does active current sensing. And there's a change in inductance as the motor slows. So you can actually detect the phase shifts between voltage and current. Um, but that's not quite out yet. Yeah, so when the current, I would guess when the current spikes is when your motor stopped, correct? It's actually, it's the phase you look at. So, um, oh, okay. So, so I'm, I'm curious uh, about... Um... Sorry, we're we're sort of jumping all over the place, but I love this. It's great. It's really interesting. So uh, I, I'm curious about how uh, how your testing has gone on this. Um, have you just kind of like taken it to people's garages and like hooked it up to a bunch of random stuff and said, "Let's give it a shot." Well, early testing or recent testing? <laughs> <laughs> well, Very I'm just different answers. Yeah. Just curious about all of them. Yeah, he probably tested those 1935 South Bend lathe first. I have actually done that, and that's one of the things that leads to my uh, one of the big sections in my manual, which is about uh, reverse threaded spindles and why not to use um, DC injection on reverse threaded spindles. Because <laughs> uh, back in uh, 1935, they I mean that would never exist on a lathe now. But uh, if you have something massive like a big chuck, it wants to keep going, and so it will unscrew itself, right, and chase you across the garage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that doesn't that's uh, that that has a little bit of gravity in it. It weighs a bit, right? Yeah, just a, just a bit. <laughs> just like eight pounds of cast iron sitting on that thing. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I ended up, uh, so I had a couple, I mean, I have this poor little Delta bench grinder and this Harbor Freight disc sander that have been my kind of 
testing devices for got almost two years and they have experienced every possible failure case that exists and are still going strong cool which includes like going to a um going to a trade show and running it like cycling it like six times a minute for four days straight um Oh, that, that, you know, that, that was actually a question I was, I was going to ask you, have you done like just the most brutal test of like, get, take it to full RPM, break it, take it to full RPM. And just like, how many times can it withstand that your, your product and the other I've done 10,000 and it was okay. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. The, the, the thing that starts getting worrisome at that point is motor heat. Cause at some point you start, I think it's a, like the, the lowest standard enamel rating is 155 C. Mm-hmm. So if you get above that, you, you risk internally shorting the motor. Um, and that's, that becomes an issue way, way before my device has trouble. Well, okay. So if, if that actually does happen where you short the coils in the motor, uh, does your device handle that? No, not yet. It does not. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to put you on on the spot here. I'm just curious. I think I think you might have to I think you might have to worry more about like the cord that's plugging the device into the wall or your breaker. Yeah, at, at that point, I think just uh, either the breaker on my device or the upstream breaker would trip because it would lower the impedance so much. Yeah, you might get some nice smoke coming out of the motor too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is intended for 110, uh, 15 amps, right? Right. Our next version is 220 also, but this one's all 110. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy though. Like I, I never ca- put this together before I was doing all this work that you think about like your little, like say that Harbor Freight disc sander that's, you know, one and three quarter horse. You don't really think about that much. When it starts up, it pulls 40 amps. <laughs> I mean, 40 amps at 110. I mean, that's a huge amount yeah. of juice. Um, and I mean, I, my neighbors probably hate me because, you know, uh, apparently the the uh, wireless router in our house has the lowest um or excuse me the highest low voltage threshold and so without tripping a breaker i can power cycle my router if i'm doing like really really high current stuff in the garage <laughs> <laughs> so i'll just get this like angry stomp on the floor from my wife like stop testing <laughs> i'm trying to watch netflix <laughs> <laughs> So, um, Scott, rewiring 18th century tall ships to designing your own product, how did you get there? Yeah, well, it, yeah, well, in the middle was a lot of uh, really big-scale engineering, like designing electrical systems for data centers and things like that. So we'll skip that for now. Um, and uh, I got there, honestly, by... Uh, like, I'm not as patient as the guy from... Click spring, but I am very persistent. And so, uh, you know, I had an EE background. I had, I've been a tinkerer for a long time, so I had the basics. And I, my, my first device was literally a bunch of off-the-shelf relays um, kind of hot glued to the inside of a metal box. Uh, and then over time, I realized that the amount of time it takes me to hand wire that is ridiculous. Um, and so I started getting back into board layout. Uh, and I had done a little bit of board layout in college. I was actually a TA and, um, had done that for a while and then not touched it for 10 years, uh, and came back and was lucky that I was at uh, Hackaday Supercon last year, which is an awesome conference. I highly recommend it. Um, and I am someone that normally hates conferences and that one was pretty good. Uh, and I was in, uh, Matt Bergeron's little workshop, who's one of the guys that I think bought Eagle from the, um, AutoCAD side. 
And uh, he did a little workshop on it, which was hilarious because the workshop actually didn't work because they had a server crash. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but afterwards, I was asking a bunch of questions and he basically spent like three hours with me showing how they had now mapped all the libraries to 3D models and how you can do your own 3D content. And then that automatically syncs to Fusion. Um, and so basically, I can do all my mechanical and electrical design in a free or nearly free uh, software base, which is pretty sweet because my mechanical design is very simple. Um, and so I basically would go through and make something work and say, this is too expensive. And then what can I switch? And realize that, oh, I should be using some solid state stuff. So let me do that. And then you figure out uh, like with triax and um, I did a lot with looking at the benefits between electromagnet, electromechanical devices like relays and solid state AC devices like triax or SCRs and then hybrids. And then I, I was going back and forth with that a long time. And uh, if you've ever dumped a 110 volt DC into a large inductor and then tried to uh, break that circuit, um, you will make an arc welder. <laughs> and so um, there was a few times. We, we just talked about that last episode, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, cutting inductors like, too quickly. What was the, uh, I think it was Parker that posted that picture of that little transistor that Gave up the ghost on your uh, oh yeah on my wagon yeah. yeah yeah that's my bench looked like that for a long time as I was figuring things out. Like, <laughs> you'd be amazed how gloriously you can destroy a, a relay. <laughs> the, yeah. the windings can actually shoot off sometimes. Um, but uh, I, I I spent a lot of time going through that, and uh, that is one of those kind of lost arts. Like everything you look at online is is DC low voltage stuff. So you start having questions about high power stuff, and you got a couple you know, forums that talk about it, but then half the stuff they say on there is like not true. Um, and so I ended up figuring a lot out and doing a lot of teardowns and it was an adventure. That well, sounds like fun. So let's, I guess let's break down your device and if you want to, right? Yeah. Um, I'm gonna give away all my IP right now. It's gonna be awesome. <laughs> well, how, now how do you do the switching then? Um, so what, why, why, is a relay a bad idea i guess for this high powered you said like 40 amps at one tw 110 volts and so industrially for these kind of applications they will use a contactor which is basically a relay made to, to break larger currents because if you get a off-the-shelf 15 amp relay um that will maybe be able to break break like three amps of an inductive load and so you all of a sudden, if you if you start going from your general purpose relays, like would be in your little you know smart switch that your light's connected to with Alexa, um, if you start um, going into inductive loads, all of a sudden none of those work, and so you start getting into this world where you want really low um, heat dissipation. So you want just a piece of copper conducting electricity, which relays are really good at, but they suck at switching. Um, especially with inductive loads. So then you want something like a triac, which is uh, in the thyristor family, which is kind of like an AC transistor. It's a good like corollary. And um, those are very good at switching like very different types of loads, but they dissipate one watt per amp. Is that just a normal... Is that because of the, of the uh, diode dropping them? Um, it's... I, I don't know, to be honest. Um, but the... Because they don't drop much, but I guess if they were, if it's about a volt, that makes sense. Um, and it, it's just, I mean, on my DC side where I use triax and I do a um, firing angle triax, so you basically turn it on and off to only get kind of chopped sections of your your AC waveform. 
And uh, if I do anything for more than about a second, the heat sink requirements just get ridiculous. And you you have to start worrying about even uh, junction temperature because no matter what kind of heat sinks you have, you got to get the heat out so fast um, that if you're a little TO220, like that's really hard to do. Um, and so I started doing a bunch of research um, into um, both kind of switching and then also uh, arc prevention. And there was this, uh, um, I found out that what most, I won't say most, what some people do is have a, what, a hybrid relay. So you basically have a, a relay contact and a triac in parallel. And the triac does all the switching and the relay does all the carrying. So your triac never needs to be on for more than like two cycles. And so you basically have no heat dissipation. Um, and then your relay can sit there like a wire and do its job. And then before it breaks, the triac turns off. And I had, uh, I had been playing with that for a little while, trying to get the timing right and found this product online, which I don't know if I should name or not, cause I'm going to give away all their IP too. Um, and it, it's this magical, you just put it on the, um, across any contact and it eliminates all arcing. And I was like, that makes no sense. Cause all their patent literature is about like RC snubbers. <laughs> it's called a diode. <laughs> it's just this little, um, box that's potted with two terminals coming out of it. It's a snub, it's a snubber circuit in a box. It's basically a snubber, but RC snubbers on this, this high energy stuff basically do nothing. Oh. And so... I, but all their patent literature is about like using a, a metal oxide varistor or something. And it's like, that makes no sense. Like, how does that work so well? Um, and so I unpotted one just for fun. Um, and which just sucks. Like unpotting things is so terrible, especially when you're trying to like preserve part numbers. Um, and it turns out it's exactly what I'm already doing. It's just a, a hybrid relay application. But the magic is, and I don't know exactly how they do this, is they have some logic in there that gets powered by the arc itself Ooh! because they have no neutral. They can go across any contact. So they basically get, they see an arc forming and then they do a hybrid relay and then it runs out of juice and turns off. It's oh, quite that's fancy. <laughs> yeah. But it's one of those, like I'm already doing exactly what it was. And I was like, what are these people doing? That's so much better than me. And then I look and I'm like, it's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was cool though. So, so, so for a little little more explanation, I guess. So a hybrid relay, what you're talking about here is so the relay and the triac are in series, correct? Um, no, parallel. And, oh, okay, completely different than I was thinking of. Yeah. So they imagine that they're basically redundant switches. They're kind of like an OR switch, and um, when you first turn on the circuit, you turn it on with the triac. So then currents flowing through the triac to the load oh okay yes yeah and then when the relay closes it doesn't have the current surge through its contacts okay okay that makes sense exactly and then in reverse when you disconnect so that prevents the the terminals from welding right exactly and you go i have i can we can upload some pictures to the blog of kind of the ten thousand cycles of a relay with and without um and with hybrid uh they have it no pitting and nothing and if you um, don't do that and just do very simple AC loads, nothing fancy with DC. You just destroy the contacts in 10,000 cycles. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. But, I mean, the the usefulness of that, correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like it starts to take 
place when you really start getting into higher power applications, right? Like that wouldn't necessarily make sense at low power applications. Right. And it, it's, it's really the inductive load piece. So um, some people will even do that hybridization just to drive a relay coil. Hmm. Because um, if you think about driving a relay coil, you know, like you got to do flyback diodes and things like that um, to make sure they don't blow up your power electronics. And so depending on how people are doing things when they do like ladder logic with relays and things like that, sometimes they'll, they'll use it for that. And then, oh, can I go on a total tangent right now? Please. Okay, awesome. So other thing I learned recently from a uh, application note, and it's one of those like you've read 100 data sheets and this one says something that no one else has, um, <laughs> is so you guys know activating a coil, right? Just a little coil for like low power for a relay or something. If you do that with a, a MOSFET or a transistor or whatever, um, the voltage spike when you try to turn it off can fry your electronics. And so people put a diode... Um, so it can, uh, they call it a freewheel diode or a flyback diode, I think. And so, and so it can basically dissipate its energy through that little diode. Mm -hmm. Everyone does it, right? And what I learned from this data sheet, which I can look up later and we can put in the notes, is when you do that, you're actually letting the magnetic field maintain itself just a little bit longer. Because instead, of when it, when it uh, voltage spikes, it voltage spikes really fast, but then the magnetic field's gone. When you put a flyback diode, you add, you know, half a millisecond or something where there's actual current flowing. Well, yeah, because it's putting that voltage back into basically back in the current back into the co coil. Right. And so you actually have a instead of the magnetic field collapsing quickly, you have a slow release magnetic field, which means that the relay arm, because there's actually a mechanical thing on a spring in there, kind of is a little sluggish in leaving. And um, and no, like most relay contacts are welding themselves like microscopically all the time, mm -hmm. and the spring action pulls it off. But what can happen is because the spring action is being fought with that like diminishing magnetic field, you basically can kill your relay much sooner because you're not letting it pull the contacts apart with its full force. Which was like, ooh, that makes total sense. And they have some really cool uh, waveforms to check that out. And so what they do instead is they put a zener in series with the flyback diode. And so if it's a 12-volt coil, you can put a 12-volt or a 15-volt zener there. So it basically will be a flyback until it hits the zener voltage, and then it just shuts off. And then lets the magnetic field collapse naturally? Right. So it basically absorbs the worst part of the spike, but doesn't let it do its like little slow dissipation thing. So you still get most of your spring pull, and you get the, you um, kind of shunt the worst of your voltage spike. But it's like one of those little things. It's like, why didn't someone tell me that like 30 designs ago? Well, and, and, and here's the thing. Like, here's going to be the engineering question that comes after that. It's like, okay, great. Everyone can probably get on board with that. But what value zener do you pick uh, for your application? Well, they actually have a really good note about that. They say, they say um, I think it says like, quote, Choose a Zener value appropriate for your application. <laughs> I was like, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, because that, that was the thing is, I was, I was, I was looking at that because Scott actually, Scott sent me that application note and I was reading, I'm like, oh, this is great. Because I was like, this would be really good for pinball because there's a big problem with, with uh, flyback diodes and pinball burning up and stuff like that and i'm like this will probably this will reduce the load on those guys and if and the 
the the thing is in, in pinball you use MOSFETs, so you're not really worrying about contacts welding and relays, but just having the actuators, your solenoids, will actually retract faster because there's less field now in those coils. And so I'm like, oh, so you would have a your you could sell your game design as a snappier gameplay, even though it might not even be perceivable by human beings. <laughs> by microseconds worth of difference. <laughs> by microseconds but it's there you can call it like uber diode or something like that um uber diode technology in your pinball machine (laughs) i just picked one that was like near my voltage level for that the coil was rated for and it's been great (laughs) (laughs) i I figured that's what it would be it's it's somewhere near your your voltage level well it's what it's it's and and it's one of those things where like nobody's going to be able to tell you what voltage that coil will snap to when you break it. You know, uh, it could be it could be millions of volts. You know, I'm, <laughs> I might that might be a little bit hyperbolistic, but it could be a lot of volts. Like you have no clue. So what zener to pick? It's just like, and you can't read it on your scope because then you load it and it really like, you dissipate I, it. Yeah, I've got a what? What's the input impedance like? Ten meg or something like that. And I guess that's enough because I can never <laughs> detect it. But then it right. keeps blowing things right. up. <laughs> I think I think that that actually comes down to like gut feel, uh, like knowing what the what the switching voltage of the coil is, and then picking a percentage within there and just being like uh, gut feel, and then test it. If if our listeners know how to measure like the flyback voltage off a solenoid correctly, let us know in the comments below or in Slack. That would be really fun. I'd like to try to measure that, but again, I think my scopes are only 10 meg inputs as well, so it'd be fruitless at 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 best. best. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, another tangent, so scopes, um, one thing I've learned and relearned and refused to learn is uh, uh, I'll actually phrase this as a shout-out to Riggle oscilloscopes because I have shorted line voltage through the ground of their probes probably 30 times and I, I still have a working oscilloscope and I don't know how that works. <laughs> like blown a like 20 amp breaker. They, they have, they have really, really, really thick chassis like frame inside, <laughs> but it's like the, it's a little like 28 gauge wire on that little probe lead. <laughs> Something I'd love to hear from people is if people have uh can find cheap differential probes, I cannot find those that are, like under four hundred dollars, it's crazy. I, I I found one. Gosh, it was. Oh man, this is probably three or four years ago. Um, it it it's a, it's a DIY project, but this guy did actually a really fantastic job. I'm gonna have to dig it up again because uh, you can just uh, get the boards made, and uh, and he made a he made a really nice active differential probe. Oh, I'm gonna have to look at that because I can't afford an isolated scope yet. Um, but the probes, I should be able to. <laughs> yeah especially if you build them yourself yeah so you're working on a new version that has a microcontroller in it right of your device so what's the microcontroller going to do so right now um i have actually actually we're going to take a slight backpedal the fact that your current device doesn't have a microcontroller in it how does that work analog for the win (laughs) right so actually i i uh because 
Um, my understanding of regulatory is if you have to regulate firmware, it's just another step. I was trying to stay out of that as long as I could. And I'm an okay firmware designer. I'm not someone, I'm like fine to write it and make it work, but I'll have someone else, you know, look at it before I make it a product. Um, and I, um, I, so I didn't want to do that yet. And I, uh, had to do all the timing and all the logic without it. So my original version was actually all relay logic, my original prototype. So all line voltage, um, three relays interacting with each other, that's it. And it would do like, it was basically a state machine, um, which was awesome, except when it accidentally skipped a state, right? Um, <laughs> and so... <laughs> Uh, and so my, my version now is actually has, uh, I have, uh, a few of my relays are 24 volt, uh, coils. And so I do some just 24 volt logic with MOSFETs. And so I think I have, um, on my low voltage DC side, I have like 60 components that are just doing, uh, edge triggers and, um, lots of different delays. Cause you get, if you think about how this thing works i have uh, my timing diagram has about nine steps for the for breaking and so i need to go through each of those just with a bunch of rc um timers on mosfets <laughs> I, I i was about to ask is this all like accomplished with like just 74 series logic and and uh a timing rc timing circuits yeah it's super simple i, I don't I'm, i don't even have op amps or anything like it's all um i have like two p channel MOSFETs, the rest are ends, and a bunch of um, little one microfarad uh, 0805s and uh, lots of magic in crossing your fingers. Well, and and you, you do get you do kind of get lucky because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you get to rely on the fact that the mains frequency is 60 hertz, so you sort of get to like hang on to you hang your hat on that. Uh, you don't have to have a circuit that your circuit is designed around that. Well, actually, I have complete isolation on the DC side. So all my, the, the user interface um, basically takes a button and from that starts a sequence where it has uh, two optocoupled triacs and three relays that have to be switched on and danced in the right order. Um, otherwise, you short mains and that's a bad idea. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it's basically this big, long dance where I got to make sure that, you know, this timer triggers which grounds this thing which starts the next timer and on and on and on oh that's cool but then the uh, alterations get a little complicated when you got to do tweaks so so you're you're gonna go you're gonna go forward and slap some smarts in it and have have a think machine in it that will uh do this timing as opposed to rc circuits exactly and then i can be a current source instead of a voltage source and then all becomes wonderful <laughs> so yeah so the i'm gonna guess with the new microcontroller version you're gonna be able to sense the current when like someone turns the device off and an auto break and it'll self-calibrate by looking at the startup torque or startup current Ooh, fancy yeah lots of fun stuff can happen then and and um so i was paying a lot of attention to your uh particle podcast the other day because i'm uh, one of the the things I'm getting from customers is that uh, for industrial customers, they want to know what's going on with their equipment. So as an IoT device, I can then do access control um, and tie into their little RFID badging system. I can uh, predict blade changes. I can um, talk about who's using what tool for how long. I can do um, reporting if they're producing medical devices. 
and all with very, very simple logic. You could also do what's really important for like um, sanding and grinding is the load percentage of how much load you're putting on the motors because there's like an op. I can't, I don't remember what percentage it is, but there's a optimal load that you need to put on a, like let's say a grinder. There's an optimal load that the motor is going to be good at running at and you'll get the most amount of work out of the adhesive or grinder or whatever, whatever tool you're using, like a, like a flap wheel, uh, like a, a sanding disc wheel. There's like a certain percentage load that you can get out of it that you, you either load the motor up too hard and then it slows down too much or it's free spinning, uh, free spinning too much. There's a percentage there. See, I was thinking the motor would just like send an angry emoji to Twitter when it needed a new blade or something. Well, yeah, there's that too. <laughs> <laughs> what, what you could do is you could just pay your workers based off of how their machine is loaded. And uh, if they're in the optimal range, you give them a, like a bonus, you know? And now, <laughs> now I'll be the, the union killing device. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, but but I also I kind of I kind of see or, or foresee an idea of like a um, uh, lockout tagout. You know, if you have a machine that you never want to start, you can, especially if it's IoT, you could just send it a never turn on device. Uh, you know, signal. So, so that's that's in the in the near future. But I'm um, overwhelmed with the amount of choice for microcontrollers right now. On on so when you're doing the current sensing, how are you doing the the isolation for your microcontroller? So that was literally a call I had this morning. So the big thing I'm I have to decide right now is if I want to do isolation on the um, AC side or the DC side, because from UL or if I forget which um, standard it is, you can do either one. So I can keep the microcontroller not isolated and then just isolate the buttons and user interface. Or I can isolate on the AC side of a DAC or an ADC, or I can isolate on the DC side of an ADC. And it, I'm going through and like pricing all the different options to see what costs the list. Because I've done um, isolation on the ADC side. So it was a DC isolation. I isolated the, the, DAC, the ADC itself. And you just put a little like optocoupler in the serial line or something? Yeah, basically. I just uh, optocoupled. Well, I did. Uh, it was magnetic coupled because I was doing. It was I square C magnetic coupled. There's some chips for it uh, that Maxim makes, I think. Um, but they're magnetically coupled instead of optically coupled. And I just chose them because it sounded cool. <laughs> uh, you could probably do optical coupled and be fine. Um, but yeah, so I I, I isolate I on the DC side, but the ADC was isolated. And I, I just learned today, I, I didn't know this was a real thing, um, that little tiny isolation DC transformers are a thing that you can put on a data bus. Yeah. Um, and little tiny power supplies that are like that too. I think like I think the company's Retcom that makes stuff like that. Is it Retcom? Um, uh, there's there's actually a bunch of companies that make that. Uh, in a previous life, I designed a um, uh, a temperature module for a large rack mount system, uh, where power and data for all of the actual ADCs on the front end of this was entirely uh, uh, galvanically isolate, uh, isolated. It was actually like we had a quarter of an inch of physical separation on our PCB for the front end of all like the sensing elements and things uh, away from the processor. And, and we had to do 
both power and data across that galvanic isolation. And and one of the things we implemented or kind of just like the general vibe of everything was only isolate what you need to because it actually cost a lot of money to isolate a lot. Uh, and when it comes down to, you know, maybe, maybe the components are easy to isolate, but when it comes down to like uh, uh, UL certifications and things like that, the galvanic proving process is is kind of stringent and so only do what you have to so so then i should just do the two buttons is what you're saying (laughs) that was yeah well that was the that was the feeling that we had at a previous job uh some other people prefer to isolate the entirety of the whole thing and that and that usually comes into performance but if you do but for your thing like as a whole, if the only thing that needs to be isolated is the buttons, I I think that what sounds like a better idea. And then I mean, I just get nervous. What you have what a voltage divider between mains and your ADC like that terrifies me. It, it, it is kind of scary, yeah. Especially when you look at things like switching power supplies that are just basically a capacitor and a and an inductor away from mains. Like, yep, uh, that's acceptable in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> So, uh, keeping going with the isolation, is there any like physical board layouts to be compliant for that kind of oh, stuff? Man, so do you guys follow? Because Stephen, because Stephen touched on that with like his gal- galvanic, gal- gal- galvanic. How do you pronounce that? Galvanic, galvanic isolation. You had like a quarter inch of physical, I guess, route out on your board. We had an eight layer board, so uh, we had four power planes and four signal planes, um, and I, I basically had this quarter inch like it looked like a river going through the middle of my pcb uh and it, and it snuck underneath these super wide chips that i had that were both data and power passing chips um and and you could see all the way basically through the board because there there can't be anything in that channel you know yeah that's the the danger zone i'm in now so do you guys watch eev blog ever one of the topic suits yeah he like I, his voice is a little hard on me sometimes, but um, but he has some good content. He did a lot of teardowns of multimeters, and so I actually learned a lot um, from from watching him, and it kind of led me on the research path that had a the difference between creepage and clearance um, when doing board design. And so I, I got to be careful because I got mains all over the place, and my new version is uh, can do 110 or 220, which I thought was going to be a trivial thing. You just double the space, right? Right. And then, but all of a sudden you increase that space and then all of a sudden, like nothing can go in between two leads. <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. How do you make this relay work when you, when the space is supposed to be wider than the leads are? Yeah. Right. And so like, so all of a sudden the routing got just way more complex and I've been doing um, a bunch of c- cutouts. And so you do the little, you know, cut out in the board to cut down on creepage. So now I got all these these parts that go through where like half the, the FR4 is gone because I'm having to cut out all these patterns and then the all the traces kind of start parallel and then get away from each other as fast as they can. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had to go to two ounce on this last one because it was so hard to route and I couldn't have the width I had before on traces. Oh, for current car- uh, carrying. Yeah. Have you thought about doing um, taking off the uh, solder mask and then doing a, a wave on it? So, um, I, I feel like this might've been EEV blog too, and I should verify this myself, but he did, uh, uh, semi empirical test of how much of a difference that actually makes with current carrying capacity. 
and found that it made very little, which was very surprising to me, which makes me want to test it myself. Um, because if you, you know, AliExpress is full of just hand soldered <laughs> copper enhancement. <laughs> well, because well, it's the thing is, it would just be tin instead of copper, and but it's it's thick, so it should lower it. That's right. That's that's what I and, think too. You know, interesting that that come that brings up a little bit of a can of worms. Um, that uh, little side tangent, but when you send a paste file off to a manufacturer, typically they're looking for uh, apertures that fit over, you know, components uh, and things like that. But if you, it's totally valid to send a paste file to a manufacturer where the paste file indicates that you want paste on a trace. Uh, and so th- that's sort of like a confusing gray zone because a lot of a lot of manufacturers will look at that and be like, "Did they really want this? Was this a mistake? We're not really sure," kind of thing. So I don't know because because I I actually noticed we we ran into that a handful of times at Macrofab where you'd see paste on traces and it kind of halts everything because you're like, "What what do we do? Do we contact the customer and be like, "Did you really want this? We're not entirely sure because we don't want to send you something that looks like a bunch of goopy solder." Yeah, on that point, because um, yeah, we saw that a lot. But it's also people would keep pace on their their gold fingers, mm. and for sure they don't want that. And so yeah, it's it's one of those you always have to check it. Yeah, and that, so at, 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 at if you at Macrofab, if you put pace there, we're pretty much going to put pace there. <laughs> makes sense. I mean, it says so. <laughs> yeah, it says so. Do it. <laughs> I, I guess I I I I lied a little bit. I do use it sparingly on like a TO two twenty package when I got to have r- high current coming out of it. I will I will move my solder mask back about a quarter inch until the trace widens, and so I don't have that. So I don't turn that little piece into a fusing element. Oh, the, actually, in solder mask is a um, an insulator. So it would actually will keep well from electricity, of course, um, but it will also keep heat in. So exposing the trace will help it radiate more heat. I don't know about how much, but that's just something I read in an app note a long, long time ago. Yeah, all the calculators talk about like internal versus external layer, and I want them to have the the option to say like solder mast top layer. <laughs> I, I would think that the calculator would take that into account, but who knows? Maybe not. If you did that, you could do different colors because different colors actually radiate <laughs> different colors infrared differently. Radiate. They do. <laughs> Black box radiation, man. Now we're starting to split hairs pretty hard. <laughs> All right. So last thing. So you, you mentioned that you were a teacher and you wanted to create a safety device to help you know, keep people safe. So what horror stories did you see or in witness that was the creation of this device? If you're willing to share. So, yeah, I've actually been really lucky and um, not really had any accidents on my watch with kids. Um, I've seen, I I think a, a better way to say is what are all the things since I never really learned from anyone. I learned from the like, oh, let me see what that does for my entire life. And so um, most of it was me projecting mistakes I have made onto kids. <laughs> um, but at the last school I was at, we, we, we worked really hard to make sure kids had access. So we'd have fifth graders that with direct supervision could operate a bandsaw. 
So, I mean, we worked with kids of all ages, but, uh, I would say for me, I have had just in my own life, so many close calls that, and especially as like a maker, probably similar to you guys, you work a lot of time by yourself late at night in your garage where like, if you did something, you'd be on the floor for a day and a half before anyone even like asked for you. Right. Cause they're like, Oh, they're just on a project. Um, and, uh, and I mean, I, I remember one of the worst ones for me was, uh, before I really knew what you could and couldn't buy at Harbor Freight, uh, I was working on a boat trailer. And I had this huge Harbor Freight drill bit. I think the thing, it was like a three-eighths drill bit, but I think the thing was like 10 inches long. And I'm sitting there with my hand drill trying to grind through like probably three-sixteenths steel with the thing. <laughs> and the thing bends over 90 degrees and spirals up my wrist. Ooh. And I thought I had slipped my wrist open. And um, it turned out to be superficial, but I mean, barely. Uh, and so it was uh, uh, pretty scary because I was out in the middle of nowhere um, but some duct tape and a paper towel fixed it right up. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I was much younger then. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Yeah, but the the other thing is I've, I've been going on the road a lot, showing this to businesses, and there's a gentleman. I was just uh, installing a device at the San Diego Fine Woodworkers Association. They're one of the biggest... Uh, woodworking associations in the u.s he had three fingers left he more had you have to like add fractions to figure out how many were left i think um <laughs> he had like the tips of four of them gone and oh, wow. he had talked he was talking about how he'd been using a table saw for 30 years and just one day right he was uh, a little less careful and got the tips of all his fingers cut off and that's that's pretty common um especially like when i think about a table saw you cut your piece and you got the little piece sitting there right next to the blade and like everyone's looking at it, I probably shouldn't reach for that. And then they do. Um, and so, I mean, it's those stories that make me think like, okay, I'm on the right track. I'm, I'm doing something that people need. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um, you, you bring up table saws and I abuse the crap out of my table saw. I think I, I cut aluminum on my table saw more than If you wood. got the right blade, that's not too bad though. <laughs> no, just a normal 24 teeth crosscut saw. Just normal one. <laughs> Cuts, cuts great. One of the days, it's going to turn that into a missile for you. I, I think I think table saws and Dremels are some of the scariest things that you can find in a shop anywhere because they're just like they're just wide open death machines that are just like, well, if it's up to you if you do it right or not. And the Dremels like to jump, right? Like you're in the middle of something thinking everything's right. And then all of a sudden it's two inches from where it was a second ago. And you're like, ah, yeah. <laughs> Spinning like, at 10,000 RPM. Yeah. 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 I, I would say my right angle, like uh five inch grinder is probably my most dangerous tool. Cause you got no guard on it. Do you? Oh, hell no. It gets in the way of every, everything. It's the first thing you take off. Yeah, that's the first thing. My, I, I actually, I don't think any of my tools have their guards on there anymore. Um, not recommended. Do not do that, kids. If you're listening to this podcast, keep the guards on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is saying this for legal reasons right now. Yeah. You know, we actually had a saw stop at uh, at a shop that I worked at for yeah. years, um, and that that was that was really cool. Although the thing, the only thing that sucks about safety devices, and this doesn't seem to apply to what what you've created is that safety devices always seem to get in the way uh yeah. like especially with the saw stop because i knew it was 
very expensive if I accidentally tripped it off. And it, and I wasn't I wasn't worried about tripping off by you know uh, bodily harm. I was more tri- worried with like is yeah. my piece of wood uh, wet for any reason or you know you cannot cut aluminum on a saw stop like yeah, that's don't, don't let Parker touch your table saw. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and it's just like I don't want to make a mistake and be out two hundred bucks to replace the cartridge. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So. And those things, have you ever had them to go off? They're terrifying. I, I, I didn't, but uh, but my buddy, uh, who actually he's the owner of that saw stop, yeah. he he was he was listening to music, um, and he was he was cutting veneers from two by four, so like eighth inch little strips and stuff like that. And he said he was cutting a piece. He turned over to look at another piece, look back, and the the blade was gone. Uh, and and I apparently had his music loud enough that he didn't hear it, but he was just like, "Wow, oh it's God. just it's just gone." It's like a, it's like a gunshot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I got to tell another funny story about that. Then, so we had that at the the last place I worked, and um, I went through three blades in like three blades and cartridges in two days, Ooh, and could not figure out what was happening because they were all false fires. And we just like we were going, we were just cutting up scrap, and we could not figure out what was wrong. Finally, we figured out someone had used the the full sheet of plywood as a backer board when they were painting, and they were painting with whiteboard paint, which can um, contains metal flakes to make it magnetic. And there was just these little droplets around this piece of plywood, and if the blade happened to touch one of those droplets, it would go. That took us so long to figure it out, like $300 later. Yeah. I would say just proper for those kind of safety stuff is it's just pro- knowing how to use your tool and being safe around tool and it's what uh, what was it because I, I did a lot of um oil and gas stuff right when i came out of college and the uh, what what the number one cause of injury is um complacency in your workforce and so like every morning we would have a safety briefing and they would go over all the safety infractions that from the previous day. And that's the first thing you did at 7 o'clock in the morning before you had your morning coffee. <laughs> was go over all the safety stuff. And yeah, because that's, that's a big deal. It, it's complacency. It's like you've used your table saw for 20 years. It's never hurt you. And then at one time, you do not pay attention. It will get you. Go talk to some roughnecks out on an oil rig, and they'll, they probably have some stories to tell you about some guy who wasn't watching a chain that was flying around or something like that, and he got his arm torn off or something. Sounds like he needs some make-safe products. You see, you see, you see, you see what I did there? I like that. That was good. Yeah, so where, where, Scott, where can people find your, your stuff? Yeah, so it depends which life you want to look at. So number one, if you want to look at safety products, I'd go to um, makesafetools.com. You can see our first product, get on our mailing list, and we have a few more coming out in the near future. We also have a a pretty cool newsletter that goes out talking about some of the updates to um, the safety environment. If you're interested in kind of the makerspace side, um, you can check out gritlab.org. That's an educational consultancy I run. Um, or the documentary films, most likely to succeed or beyond measure, where you can see us making really cool stuff with kids. Um, and then, of course, the, there's a bunch of social media that I don't use as much as I should because I'm just barely not a millennial. Um, but you can do uh, Twitter at, at S. Swaley um, or also on Facebook. But uh, I'm really a old school guy. So check out the websites. You, have a, you have a uh, MySpace then, right? 
Um, <laughs> I, I, I remember having one actually. I, I wonder if it's still there sometimes. <laughs> you, you know, um, I'll inject this too. Uh, you do have a YouTube, and I'm saying that because I actually watched your YouTube. And and so if you want to see uh, your product in action, there are some videos up on YouTube. So I think there's a bench grinder and a, a rotary sander. Yeah, absolutely. And if if people are running maker spaces or educational spaces, I will make a sweet deal because that's a movement I'm very passionate about. So if you guys are interested in these kind of products and um, you want to keep some kids safe or teach people how to make things, uh, email me. Stuff's on the website, and uh, we'll work some out. Well, so thank you, Scott, for being a guest on the podcast. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Scott Swaley. And we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or cool thing that you've designed that you want Stephen and I to talk about, tweet us at MacFab or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. That's actually how we met Scott. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest map episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us. And stay tuned for next week's podcast where we have a secret map thing going on.